Welcome to Altamar. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. And together we will navigate the high seas of global politics with you today. Our guest is Ian Bremmer, political risk expert and head of the Eurasia Group. And with him, we'll explore the avalanche of global elections that have taken place in the past couple of weeks and those that will occur over the next few months. We'll discuss voting trends and also a true and concerning paradox. Even as more people come out to vote, democracy seems to be weakening worldwide. So, Mooney, about half of the world's voters cast ballots in April and May of 2019. Just recently in India alone, almost 900 million people voted. In Spain, a historically high turnout of 26 million voters gave a partial victory to the ruling Socialist Party. As we speak, EU parliamentary are happening all across Europe. Indonesians and Panamanians went to the polls. 30 million South Africans voted in May, and if that were not enough, Uruguay, Bolivia, Argentina, so many other countries are facing elections, and those elections are going to define a lot of stuff. In Bolivia, for example, strongman Evo Morales seeks to extend his long reign in power, almost interminable reign. In Argentina, President Macri faces a tough test of his economic reforms, and we may see the return of a former controversial president, Christina Kirchner. I'm struck by India, which is uh, in this long voting process, and it's been called the world's largest exercise in democracy. It takes weeks and weeks for the votes and more to, for the votes to be counted. And between incumbent Narendra Modi and Rahul Gandhi, and this vote takes place in seven phases, results reported three weeks later. Meanwhile, Indonesia, the world's third largest democracy with 190 million eligible voters and 6 million election workers helped them in April. It was really sad to see that 300 election officials, 300 died of exhaustion from working too hard on the, on the polls, while both candidates have claimed victory. Okay, so it's clear that people are flocking to the polls. Participation is high. But in a world where democracy is electing a dangerous hybrid of strongmen over and over again, and these strongmen then decide to stay in power, countries are more polarized, voters are more disenfranchised and disenchanted. I guess the question that really hits me, Mooney, remains, is the health of democracy still measured mainly by elections? I, I just don't know if that's the right thermometer any longer. I think that has to be seen, Peter, in, a, in the context of several new trends that are visible when you analyze the recent vote, voting results and the voting expectations. And they're interesting markers of a world that is changing every day. We won't talk here more than we already have about ethno-nationalism, strongmen, populism, and the war against journalists. We've done plenty of shows on those. But what I do think is important is to underline the new trends that are weighing down democracy as we know it. And I, I think the, the most obvious one is religion. Religion and socialist issues have become sharp dividers, not just in the United States. Indonesia is a perfect example, for instance, in which President Yoko Widodo tweets his meetings with Saudi royals and photos of pilgrimages to Mecca. Jokowi is a moderate candidate who's traditionally had a focus on infrastructure and who now feels compelled to prove and underscore his religion to prove that he's, quote, Muslim enough for the voters. And meanwhile, in Spain, right-wing Vox launches its campaign in Covadonga, the first city to be reconquered by the Muslims, uh, from the Muslims by the Catholic kings in the late 1400s. 
you know, the other thing I find so surprising when you look at trends, you know, you talked about religion, but also there's this youth voting trend that's so generationally skewed from what I used to know. You know, young people in general have become more politically active and surprisingly more conservative. So gone are those days where I used to be at the university with days of socialist rebellion, where all of us were proud to declare ourselves radical leftists. If you look in Israel, where elections were recently held, I was surprised to see that young people are far more right-wing than their parents. And again, in Spain, you mentioned Vox. You know, there, the anti-separate, anti-gay voice has a substantial millennial following fueled by Instagram and YouTube and has overnight become and catapulted itself as a political player in that country. In India, Hindu nationalism has a much younger than expected following. Another trend, Peter, is coalitions. They've always been around, but today they're a growing actor in today's bizarre voting patterns. And more and more, the center is creating alliances with the extremes, left or right, and we see that even in countries like Germany, and end up governing side by side by the most radical of extremists. Finland, Spain, Italy, India, the political spectrum is completely fractured, and coalitions are the name of the game, sometimes not enough majority to even rule. In India, especially coalitions have been kind of the exception have proved to be better guarantors of good governance than majorities. But in other cases, these improvised tools result in either paralysis or dangerous concessions to extreme factions and a weak hand when trying to get things done in a more radicalized government. Another one, Muni, is Israel. Netanyahu is right-wing enough, but he had to go now to bed with one of the most extremes of extremes, an ultra-nationalist, nearly fascist party that is now part of his voting bloc. And of course, we can't ignore how misinformation and fake news have gone mainstream and been injected in today's electoral cycles over and over and over again. This well-known threat first came to light in the United States, where the sirens now have been blazing and the, and the red lights have been flashing uh, about how do we make sure that we keep U.S. elections safe now in 2020. But for example, in Indonesia, fake news has had led to little faith in the results themselves. And in Canada, can, the Canadians are taking measures to avoid fake news in their upcoming federal elections. Europe is really restricting the role of Facebook and Twitter. And indeed, the role of Facebook and WhatsApp and Google and Twitter is the new name of the game in global politics. The impact is evident, but it's so difficult to calculate in its scope. What we thought was going to be this liberating, magnificent effect of social media that empowers voices that we haven't heard before, now it's just fueled enormous amount of global skepticism on democracy. Well, talking about skepticism, what about the polling? That's a huge paradox. And I looked online to see who defends polling, and the pollsters are the most ardent defenders, but the rest of the world is kind of skeptical now even though the science behind polling and the sophisticated measures that are taken for finding public opinion is less able every day to predict voting outcomes. And trusting polls has led to many spectacular surprises that we all remember, like Brexit or Trump's victory and others. Uh, certainly the polls face technical issues with cell phones and social media, but it's hard to tell until the very last minute what decision the voters themselves are going to make. So the question remains the same one that we asked at the beginning of the show. Can the health of democracy still be measured mainly by elections? We have a great guest today who's going to help us answer that question. Ian Bremmer is here with us. He's the president of the Eurasia Group and also the president and founder of G-Zero Media, a worldwide speaker and analyst on political trends and political risk. He's published 10 books, including several national bestsellers. Ian, it's a pleasure to have you on the show with us today on Altamar. Sure, my pleasure. 
So Ian, to begin, what are the global political trends we are seeing and how are they affecting democracy around the globe? It's certainly uh, better to have people vote than not vote. Um, Now, in some countries, you have nominal elections where there's no real choice. The media is controlled by the government. There's no effective opposition. I mean, Russia, you've got elections. People are voting. I don't think in any way it's a representative democracy. You have a lot of countries that are representative democracies, but increasingly large numbers of people feel like the system is rigged against them. And certainly that's why you got Trump in the U.S. It's why you got Bernie Sanders. It's why Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the most talked about on the Democratic side on social media. And that reality we see happening and developing across, I mean, I would say uh, most of the democracies in the world today, not all, but most. And so in that regard, the health of democracies globally is weakening, and it's weakening, unfortunately, at a time when an alternative model, that of the Chinese, is uh, not only fairly robust, but is on the precipice of becoming the world's largest economy. Uh, in other words, uh, it would have been a much easier geopolitical environment to experience some trials and tribulations of the world's democracies if it was happening you know, after Soviet collapse in 1991 um, than almost 30 years later. That's certainly something to take into account, the growing attraction of the Chinese model and its direct contrast to Western democracy. We've also touched briefly on recent large elections in India, Indonesia, and South Africa. Are there any common themes that you can identify in these large voter mobilizations? In most of them, there's a growing sense that the corruption of the elites, that the gatekeepers in the country are increasingly effective at keeping those outside the gates from having opportunities for themselves and their children. Certainly, that's a big part of how Modi won in India. That's how Lopez Obrador won in Mexico. That's how Bolsonaro won in Brazil. That's also one of the biggest challenges that um, Ramaphosa is having um, in South Africa and in many other countries around the world. But I would say the single thing that is uh, the biggest sudden driver is the role of technology. It is the advent of social media, the fact that increasingly people are only getting news from people that they already agree with, And that is driving an enormous amount of political polarization and anger. It is weaponizing the discontent that exists in these countries. And it's allowing political entrepreneurs to channel, use, and leverage it for their own benefits. That's clearly the one big change you're seeing in democratic elections around the world. The impact that social media is having in creating more extremism and more discontent in those election outcomes. Well, I used to be sure that the role of social media had changed elections for good, but I'm a lot less sure now. And with religious extremism growing and affecting democracies, Ian, can you give us your take on the role that social media is playing as it relates to religion and extremism and also to democracy? Sure. Again, massively weaponized by technology. So I'm not so sure that the religion and the extremism itself is new. 
But I think the way that those religious movements and those extremist movements are able to coalesce, to coordinate, to grip people that are you know, far away and otherwise would require an enormous amount of resource to actually organize, I think that's absolutely the case today. And, you know, I wonder what the drivers of these movements are as they relate to governance. Electorates are becoming more fragmented. What are some of these drivers? Uh, you're not going to be surprised to hear me say that I think the driver is very similar. Um, again, I mean, we've had all sorts of reasons for electorates to be fragmented for a long time now, and yet it's expanded massively at the same time as we've seen these new technologies playing a big role in democracies and not in authoritarian states. And how does that also explain the persistence of right-wing populists and strongmen, which we've talked about so many times on this show, especially when it comes to winning over the favor of younger voters? Well, I mean, they're not turning to the right everywhere. Um, I mean, in in Mexico, um, where Lopez Obrador presently has approval ratings at 80 percent, and the young people are incredibly supportive of him, that's not on the right, that's on the left. And Bernie Sanders in the United States um, really does uh, attract a younger vote. But you're right that if we were going to look at general expressions of nationalist and populist discontent in democracies around the world, young people are feeling that more strongly. And most of that has been picked up by movements on the far right as opposed to on the far left. I think some of that is the ideological alignment of nationalism and the opposition to immigrant movements, for example, on the right. Though in some cases, I mean, right-wing populism doesn't sit as easily with a lot of those traditional policy preferences that we've seen on that side of the spectrum. I mean, think about the anti-free trade sentiment that a lot of those right-wing populists are driving now, where, I mean, over the course of the last 30, 40 years, we typically have identified the right more with free trade and supporting, you know, big business and capitalism. So, Ian, would you say that there's been a kind of Trump effect in elections in other countries? Certainly, right-wing populism fits in with anti-immigration and other Trump-like policies. Uh, you know, there's no question that uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil has lined himself up with Trump personally. And you hear about Italy first from Salvini, who is, uh, you know, the, the nominal head of uh, the league in Italy, even though he's not actually physically running the party because of his legal uh, issues historically. I do think that that, there's a bit of that. But um, I think if you didn't have Trump, I I suspect that these movements would have been happening all over the place. Let's remember that in Hungary, Viktor Orban predates Trump. Let's remember that the Brexit vote was months ahead of Trump. I think these are much more structural factors uh, than they are playing off of uh, the uh, election in 2016 here in the U.S. It seems overall that the world is moving away from freedom and the rule of law. How can elections and democracy be strengthened? You can certainly do things to try to make the election process more secure from external malign actors. So the Russians, for example, who have played a significant role in trying to help delegitimize democratic elections, not just in the U.S., but in France, in the U.K. referendum, I mean, you know, across Europe and Eastern Europe as well. But that's very different from saying, how do we take the nefarious and fragmenting impacts of social media out of our democracies, which are, you know, helping to ensure that people don't have a single conversation as a nation, but instead are uh, engaged much more 
in political polarization and anger. And the problem is that that polarization and anger is central to the business model of social media. The human beings that are consuming the information are not the clients, they're the products that are being sold. And the way you get advertising revenue is to ensure that you maximize the engagement and the eyeballs. And you know we've seen these studies, whether it's on Twitter or on YouTube or on other social media avenues. And in each of them, you need that extremism to drive your margins. So, I mean, this is a fundamental problem. You're basically saying that the core business model of these companies happens to not only not be nicely aligned with the precepts of liberal democracy, but actually are fundamentally opposed to them. And that's a real problem. And you're right. It wasn't the case when we first started talking about these mechanisms, about the smartphones. Uh, We had the Green Revolution in Iran. And, you know, people were demonstrating because uh, more effectively because they had access to these devices. They could pass information to each other. That's what led to a a rise against a brutal regime that stripped people's rights away. We saw that happening in Tunisia and Egypt as well. But with the um, expansion of big data and surveillance, you've suddenly taken power of information technology out of the hands of the individual and into the hands of the aggregators, whether those are big corporations like Facebook and Google, or whether they're big governments um, like the United States and China. And, um, you know, frankly, I don't think we're very close to figuring out how we're going to respond or resolve uh, those challenges. Uh, it's daunting for sure, seeing these challenges and the ramifications from major affronts to liberal democracy around the world, e- even in the United States. But I, I want to turn to India. The largest democratic exercise has, in the world has taken place, and the United States depends heavily on Indian cooperation to balance China, arguably the U.S. administration's top foreign policy priority. How disruptive would an opposition victory in India actually be? Um, Not very, in my view. Um, I mean, you know, of course, this is the largest democratic elections over many weeks, also the most expensive in the world, not a surprise given the actual population of India. It's an extraordinary expression of democracy in a country where the people largely believe in it. And they believe in it in part because it's so localized. You know, incumbency in most countries is still a strong political advantage. If someone's been in power, they tend to stay in power. And there have been exceptions to that rule, but generally speaking, that's the way it usually works, which is why you have term limits in a lot of countries. In the case of India, incumbency is frequently a disadvantage, and the locals just vote the bums out because they get promises and they get new benefits from new people, and they get angry once people are actually in office. It's kind of interesting. So this is a country where people do believe a lot. In democracy, but the outcome of this election is probably going to be another Modi administration, probably not with an absolute majority of seats in their legislature, but instead needing to form a coalition. And that means kind of the direction they have been heading both domestically and in foreign policy, but a little weaker, a little harder to get things done with Modi himself a little more experienced and understanding that the actual nature of an electoral honeymoon in India is uh, is pretty short and the window is pretty 
pretty narrow. You mentioned Mexico with AMLO now in office. In the beginning of the year, you predicted that it was one of the largest global risks. Do you still feel that way? Sure. Um, but when I, you know, risk doesn't necessarily mean it's universally a bad thing. I mean, risks are opportunities for certain people always. Um, I mean, even climate change, which is, you know, maybe the biggest global risk is going to be great for if you're Russia, you know, I mean, uh, great for a lot of people in Canada. In this case, I would say in Mexico, you have an awful lot of people that have felt like the system has worked against them for a long time, that uh, you've got a lot of economic inequality, you've got a lot of corruption at the top of the establishment political parties. And here comes Lopez Obrador, used to be a very popular mayor of Mexico City, but outside the traditional political framework. I mean, far left, he was more aligned with people like Chavez and Castro than he was with the United States or the Washington consensus. He wins, and most people that know him from the establishment think he is a decent guy, think that his you know, sort of heart is in the right place. He's certainly not corrupt, which is very important. He sold the presidential plane. He opened the presidential palace for the public to come and visit. He's done a lot of those things, but he, does, he really doesn't understand the global economy in the 21st century, and his team isn't very good. I mean, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil also doesn't understand the economy, but he has a lot of economic advisors that actually do. And so, you know, here in Lopez Obrador is trying to do a lot of things that really matter for Mexico. So build up infrastructure in poorer parts of the country, particularly the South that really need it. Um, he's increasing the minimum wage. He's trying to empower labor unions, improve the state of education. I mean, all of these things have been ignored for a while in Mexico. They're important to do. But he's also kind of destroying the economy. He's wasting an enormous amount of money. Um, he decided, for example, that he was going to kill this big airport in Mexico City that they'd already spent $5 billion on. He's planning a new one. It's not going to work. It's already they've had to back off on when it gets done and how much more money they're going to spend than they think. He's talking about Mexico's energy sector needing to rely on itself as opposed to having international investment. I get the nationalist orientation, but they don't have the talent base. They don't have the skills and they don't have the, the money, frankly, to be building, um, you know, sort of refineries and have, you know, sort of upstream to downstream all in Mexico. And it's going to really hurt the economy. And I think Mexico's uh, growth right now is already quite low, much lower than his own expectations were. They're just over 1%. And I think they're going to they're going to have a, a severe fiscal crunch in the near term that's going to hurt Lopez Obrador a lot. It's going to make it really hard for him to accomplish the things for the Mexican people that he was elected for. And what's going to happen in Argentina? Perhaps one of the places where there's greatest danger of populism returning. With elections in 2019 in October, it's looking like Kirchner stands to win. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I, I don't know that I would agree that nowhere is the danger greater. Um, I mean, you know, Argentina is actually a, a reasonably stable country in part, one of the reasons why Kirchner lasted so long, despite the fact that she was economically so incapable and she was so corrupt, is that, you know, they, they, there wasn't the same entrepreneurial sense, either of the middle classes or the elites, that, um, that it needed to be better. You know, Argentina, remember, used to be wealthier per capita than the United States. They think of themselves as Europeans, many of them. And, and there's, a, there's a level of both pride and but also arrogance um, in that. 
And so as a consequence, there's not as much interest in sending your kids to American universities or, you know, sort of, you know, how are they going to, what are they going to do to make sure that this country is moving in the right direction in five or 10 years time? Doesn't have the urgency. I do think that um, Macri uh, had a lot of bad luck. Uh, You know, they had, uh, they had bad weather conditions that hit agriculture. Commodity prices got, um, got hit as well at the same time. And the economy, he needed a massive bailout from the IMF, the biggest that any country had ever gotten. And that's putting them under a lot of strain. And so a lot of the promises that he made, and he never had real support, never had committed support for more than a third of the population for the kind of policies he wanted to implement. So he had to do half measures from the beginning. Now he's getting really hurt because the economic conditions are bad. And that means that Kirchner has a shot. She could win. It also means the former finance minister, Lavagna, if he decides he's going to run, and he seems to be moving in that direction, would also be competitive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, here in Argentina, you had a leader that the business community loved. He's, he's also personally quite close and friendly with Trump. They golf and things like that. But it's not at all clear that he's going to be the guy uh, in upcoming elections. Ian, you also predicted that 2019 would be a reasonably good year. There's been a lot of stuff happening. What what are you most optimistic about as you look forward? Well, reasonably good year in the sense that I didn't think a lot of things were going to blow up. I mean, I, I feel that um, the, the broad geopolitical order is destabilizing. Democracies are getting weaker. And the United States is increasingly not the leader of the global economy or the global political system. And and those things are going to cause real problems long term. But in the near term, if you ask me, you know, 2019, were we going to see a flare up or a blow up between the US and China, despite what Trump was saying before? I think the answer is no. I think ultimately they still will get a deal, despite his tweets over the weekend, uh, putting more pressure on the Chinese, on North Korea, despite the fire and fury um, and the more recent uh, short missile test. I, I don't think we're heading for direct confrontation. Um, there's been a, a lot of talk and now a, um, a carrier group being sent over to the Persian Gulf to flex American muscles against the Iranians. But the Iranians are really not looking for trouble. And the foreign minister even said he was willing to negotiate with the Americans under a lot of pressure um, uh, on the Americans that are presently uh, being held hostage there in Iran. Um, you know, I, I think if you look around the world, a lot of things are politically heading in a bad direction. But very few of them feel like they're going to blow up in the near term. I I don't know if you want to call that a silver lining, but it certainly means that, you know, to the extent that when we write about, you know, the year ahead and we use this arbitrary 12 month mechanism to think about where things are going. And Lord knows a lot of CEOs and people in the markets and and the rest think in those terms as well. We have annual reports The 2019 felt like a year with reasonable economic growth. You've seen the unemployment numbers in the United States. You see where the U.S. markets are right now. You see where interest rates are globally. Things feel okay. But if you take a step back and ask where the world is going, and that's how you started this interview, is uh, you know talking about where I think democracy is heading, uh, then you get a much more challenging picture. Ian Bremmer, thank you so much for talking to us on Altamar today. Good to talk to you guys. So, Peter, we're ending this podcast on a reasonably optimistic note in terms of the relationship between voting and democracy, although expectations are low. um, It seems in listening to our guests that there will not hopefully be a large blow up before the end of the year. And that's pretty encouraging, don't you think? 
I understand, Mooney, why you feel optimistic. I mean, the right person won in Indonesia with Widodo and Ramaphosa in South Africa is certainly uh, the right candidate to take the presidency. I think there's signs also that voting can also mo- moderate somehow all that pent-up fragmentation and frustration because I have to say that with all these elections, the fact is that our societies, whether you're talking about industrialized countries or in the developing world, our societies are so much more fragmented and elections have a way of releasing some of that negative energy. But you know, when you look at what Ian said, he kept pointing to this issue of the weaponization of social media. It's weaponized on religious issues. It's weaponized on populism. When that starts happening, it just accelerates the fragmentation of our societies. And I hope elections can continue to be a way to let off steam and elect the right people. But I got to tell you, Mooney, I would not put my hand in the fire that that's going to be the case for forever. Well, here we are with a skeptical Peter Schechter. Thank you for joining us on All Tomorrow. See you next time. 